instead of running off eagle field, meeting rooms, gut feelings, I'm letting real life data drive my decisions in my business. Welcome closers. Today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season three on profit. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actual insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage a hundred units or a thousand, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Brenton Hayden, the founder of Renters Warehouse and a true OG in the property management industry. Before there were roll-up plays like Home River, before VCs were dropping tens of millions to back companies like mine, before anyone in high finance could even be bothered to think about little old property management, Brenton Hayden was dreaming and scheming about how to build an empire in this sleepy little industry. I've known Brenton for a while now. Brenton originally came on my radar screen actually by hearing some competitors in his market kind of complain about him and his success and his swagger and the fact that he was young and had a growing company and how did he deserve that? Which was interesting. It was, it was a mental note for me. Then I met the guy. I got to know him, got to learn more about what he was doing. Uh, and it's been fun to watch his success. So you know who Renner's Warehouse is if you're listening to this right now. It requires no explanation. The company has blown up since Brenton departed. Brenton took an early retirement at the age of 27, but he's taken some time out of his busy non-schedule to jump on this podcast Brenton, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, what an introduction. And you hit it right on the head, man. You're an OG as well, if you if you recall. I know you have a number of successful businesses. I haven't quite kept up with you as much as we used to, but uh, you're an OG as well. And then you hit the nail on the head, man. We started this thing when people really weren't messing with property management. And it was basically beneath about every real estate agent out there. So it's nice to uh, look back on that in, uh, in remembrance. Man, I got a lot of questions to ask you, but I want to start here. They say in luck behind every great success, there are a couple of things. Luck is one of those. Luck is one of those things that doesn't get a lot of airtime. Timing is another. When I think about the window in the time frame that you got in, it ended up in hindsight being absolutely ideal. But at the time, you couldn't have known that. On day one, what did you think you were going after? What did you think you were getting into when you decided to have ambition around, like we said, this otherwise kind of sleepy industry? I had this plan to retire early. You know, that t- retiring at 27 was, was by design, per se. Did I think it would happen? Probably not. But you have to have a goal or a plan. And, and I thought it seemed easy. My plan didn't say property management. It said real estate. And so I eventually got into real estate after leaving a sales job when I was 19 at Kellogg's. I was selling cookies and crackers. And I got a job with a top, uh, highly successful real estate agent in Minnesota. And I was like one of his buyer's agents. Well, as a buyer's agent with him, 
I was on salary, no commission, and I just responded to the number of his leads that were inbound. So it taught me a lot about marketing and how real estate leads are generated. This guy was a really good professional real estate agent. But it wasn't long that he deemed me as somebody who might become his competition, if I recall. And uh, like did one of these, like you got five minutes to like get out, you're terminated because I'm starting my own company and you're not coming with. It was a weird situation and it forced my hand to uh, not only switching jobs twice when you're 19, but not having a lot of money. I needed to start making a living and, and having a license was the one thing I had. And the one opportunity that was available was to do the, the dirty work, mm-hmm. lease houses for people and investors and, and cheap guys and, and, you know, real professional jerks that were in Minnesota kind of real estate agents and different things. They'd hand you business because it was beneath them. But I, I needed the money and I was able to do it. And it was around that time these websites were popping up, RentClicks, Rent.com, and really everybody was using the paper still, classified ad signs in the yard. Well, I did all of it. I put it on one website, which literally literally went to like four later. And then I had a sign and I had a Craigslist. And as a result, I was renting properties really quickly. And that was my way of income. That was my venture into property management, trying to make a living as a real estate agent at like 19 years of age and doing the dirty work, which was leasing houses. Eventually rolled up into something bigger as I captured more of that opportunity. Uh, but it was really that simple of a story. I didn't have that. It didn't, I didn't design a property management company and start in real estate. It just, it came to me. I had to. And then the company evolved many times over. Originally for the first year and a half, we were only a leasing company, period. We didn't do any property management because I didn't know how I didn't want to, I didn't really want to either. That was hard work. Well, after getting significant success in leasing, we're like, let's be in, let's get into the property management game. And, but how would we compete? We became one of the cheapest, but only offered, you know, really limited services. We offered like five things. And we said, if it wasn't in those five things, we don't do it, but this is what we do. And we'll do all these five things. Well, we'll fast forward, we became the largest property manager of single family homes for others in America. Wow. Uh, Without that plan. Man. So before we even move on to property management, what were you doing with leasing? Like did the leasing thing at at 19, it's a pretty low bar. Like how far did you get with that? Did that blow up enough for you to realize there was some real money here? No one's ever broken the Brenton Hayden records. I don't think they even think they're true, but they are. And uh, I used to lease 50, 55 houses a month by myself. And I would charge first month's rent or second month's rent as well for longer term leases as a commission. And now I was at a brokerage where they didn't want me doing leasing. In fact, didn't want to bother with the leasing commission. So I got to keep all of it. And it was becoming very profitable. I found, oh, why don't guys do this? I could, I could make more than some of the top agents. And I had very consistent but smaller checks. Uh, that's where it all really started for me was doing that. You know, eventually I had a guy drive me around in my car. It was like an assistant and he would help answer my phone because I had a homeowner's calling, prospective tenants calling. And then I had somebody in the back that also helped me do that. And we were just like a roving mobile office. <laughs> At the time we had like a PC card, you plugged in a, a computer and we had the old cameras you plugged in and, and we were uploading and creating listings on the fly like this. We could keep up with it. And then eventually I was like, I just can't keep up with it. And so I had so much business coming in because I was actually pretty darn good at doing that because no one was really using the internet to rent houses and nobody would actually do what they say they do. So I did. And that worked out very well. As a result, too well, we had, I had to find people that would come work for me. And as a result, I had to create, I didn't know the laws, but I had to create my own brokerage. 
And so then I rented a broker. I brought in a, uh, like three guys to come help me handle the business. They got whatever I couldn't handle. And next thing you know, it turned into Renner's Warehouse Leasing Company. But actually before that, it was called Hayden and Company. And it was just, you know, Hayden and Company Leasing. And we built a website called renterswarehouse.com to try and compete with the rent.com, the rentclicks.com in the world. And as a result, we were having 50, 60, 70 of the 200 listings in Minnesota at the time. So we created Renters Warehouse to try and create our own site. It was just a little old Renters Warehouse website for only Minnesota rental properties. And people kept confusing the two. Are you Hayden and Company or are you Renters Warehouse? And we finally said, let's just, let's just throw this Hayden and Company thing away and call ourselves officially Renters Warehouse. Legally, our name is still Hayden and Company, uh, but we're doing business as the Renters Warehouse name. And, and that really didn't start out to be a property management company, but rather a internet listing service website. So something really stuck out to me when you talked about getting into property management, specifically when you connected being a discount property manager with having a limited scope of services. Scope mm-hmm. of services is such an interesting thing that people gloss over in the name of wanting to provide good service. A lot of folks are willing to do just about anything, which is a great way to impoverish yourself. The reality yeah. is if you pay less, you should get less. As a consumer, that's not a foreign concept, but there have to be some boundaries in place to do that. What did that initial scope of services look like when you guys first started? They're still very similar today. What I, what I was seeing is people complaining about the property manager. And what were they complaining about? Uh, the bad tenants. You put in, they put in a bad tenant. Anytime a tenant went bad, that guy, whoever put it in, the, they must have did that to me. The tenants always damage the property. The guy never collects the rent. He's slow to handle maintenance. So I quickly figured out what a property management company was needed for. Do the accounting, handle the maintenance, enforce mm-hmm. the lease, be the landlord essentially. So the owner doesn't have to. And uh, essentially if it wasn't in there, we didn't do it. And that's how we started out. 79 bucks a month, no matter the rent. So it's $2,000 a month, $500 a month and $5,000 a month. There's $79 a month. A member would say in a radio ads, $2.54 a day. And you could have my team manage your property for you and get it tax deducted. And that was the whole way we got on. I got a little radio ad and that what took off. I found that people just, we, but we guaranteed those things. Meaning if we didn't collect the rent, we didn't get paid. Uh, we would coordinate the maintenance so you didn't have to, and you could get use our discounted vendors. If we couldn't get you a cheaper price than you could get, then you, we didn't get paid. It was all of this, like, we're going to do these things, but we're going to be absolutely great and guarantee our work about mm. those things mm. and put our money on the line. And further, we did one more thing. No freeze up front, cancel any time, non-binding contract, only pay when you get something you want, you, you, want you, you deserve. That went with leasing as well. So if we didn't lease your property, we didn't get paid. If, and by the way, we asked our homeowners to approve the tenants, not us. And that was a foreign concept to let the homeowner decide who rented there was generally not done by any property manager. Property managers told you, found you a tenant, he's moving in on the first. That was how the industry was at that time. And I decided that's just not right. It's too much liability, I thought. And so I made it so that they had to approve them, but I guided them on fair housing and whatnot. It, these, these little subtle difference game changed the industry. In fact, I was in a, when I was doing this, everybody hated us, complained about us, changed the industry. He's so cheap. He can't possibly do all this. Now, if you look at the industry, they're all just like, and that's because it, it was required to be that way. People were, it was an antiquated industry that needed some fresh blood in it. And I, I think me and a number of other superstars were the fresh blood. 
So let's break this down. When we talk about what drives you to do the things that you talked about, because it all sounds great, but there's a lot of other people that formed property management companies at the same time that didn't take that same model. I think part of this is just temperament, right? Brent and Hayden came out of the womb, wired a certain way that was going to be okay being balls out, taking risks. At the same time, you're telling me you had, you had some cash hot in your hand, right? Like you had a nut that allowed you to take some more risks. Making some of these decisions and some of these distinctions wasn't the difference between you living in your car versus, well, versus it not. It was in the beginning. Uh, absolutely. I, I didn't have any money to even afford to go to school, which was like whatever, $1,000 to get a real estate license. And I borrowed three grand from my dad. And at the time, that two grand was for a laptop. And you know, there was something else. I, I was kind of tech savvy. I bought a, la- a laptop at the time that you could turn the screen around, roll it down on itself and write on it. And nobody did that. But I eventually kind of was one of the early DocuSign users. And I could sign leases on the go, but I had to get a Wi-Fi card and like a fax card for my laptop. Well, shoot, that was quite an innovation that allowed me to do a lot more deals as an individual. Mm-hmm. And others. that laptop, that license was all borrowed money from my, my father, who was a 30-year truck driver. So no money was not something we had. However, you know, I had that $30,000 salary at Zabraki. I got that job for six months. You know, that's not money when you're, that's not real good money. I didn't have much left. I was actually evicted from my, my first apartment around that time. And it was basically in a fit of desperation while sleeping in my Oldsmobile Cutlass at the park, a Lions Club park, taking cold showers at night, not to be embarrassed. So nobody would see me for about a week. I lived that way because uh, the only other place I could stay was my buddy. And he was a bum. He, he, I'd rather sleep in my car than at his place. So I was forced into a fit of desperation. And I wrote seven pages on yellow notebook, what I was good at, what I, what I wasn't good at, what I wanted to do, what I didn't want to do, how much I needed to retire, how I'd get there. I broke it down by years. I don't know if it was desperation or inspiration, but that paper lived with me for a long time and it kept me hungry. Now, when I lost that job at Zabraki, it went very quickly. It's like, uh, I've never had these feelings before, but a couple businesses I've started, it's like when you start, there's a tsunami of appreciation and, and want for your business. And so now I'm kind of a bit jaded if I start new businesses and it doesn't go like that. I'm very worried because every, when I started that leasing company, it was just an insatiable demand for my services. And it start, I got lucky. You know, the first two or three guys I worked with had like seven or 10 properties and this guy had six and this guy had three. But you know what they knew is they knew a bunch of other guys just like them. And there are all these old guys that got three jobs and they got money, but they're, they're, they're hard at work. And it's tough for them managing their real, rental real estate. So I quickly became like the guy for like 60 properties. And next thing you know, those guys told other guys and it just went very, very quickly. So I did make, you know, I was able to probably put away about 30 grand, which allowed me to form an LLC, get a lawyer, rent a, a $900 a month office, ask a couple guys to come. I had enough business where it hurt, where I could share it. And then I took a chance that, you know, that little investment would work out. And it did. I never really had to even touch that 30 grand. That business was immediately profitable. The first year was like, we did, we were only open for like two months. It was the last parts of uh, September, 2007. I started that business by October. We were profitable that following next year, 2008, we were just shy of a million dollars in profit, which, uh, which was huge for me to one, make a million dollars as a business owner in your first full year was like an aha moment. I got to grab this 
this bull by the horns and ride it as far as it can go. And, and from there, we, we were like one of the fastest growing companies in America for like eight. Well, we're still on the Inc. 5000 for the 10th consecutive year. Amazing, man. I want to go back and analyze a couple of the distinctions that you mentioned previously. We glossed over those, but there's a lot there, at least for me. Let's start with the flat fee pricing, which there was a lot of pushback around, right? There was definitely the reaction of like, hey, you can't do that. That makes us look bad. And it's supposed to be a percentage of the rent so that as rents grow, uh, the management fee will, the net fee will increase, et cetera. What were you thinking with flat fee? Was it just as simple as like, hey, if I was a customer, I would want to have a simple known kind of quantity? I want to say like I did the math and I knew how much it would cost me, you know, to manage a property. I didn't. I came up with a price that I thought I would pay, that I thought was fair for those services. And also significantly undercut the competition. Uh, I, I literally on purpose wanted to undercut the competition to get into the marketplace because management in my eyes from the very beginning was only a job so that I could get the leasing business the next year. That was the fruit, the juice. That was the, that was where the money was at placing tenants in a property in a good one, managing it. If they're good 80% of the time, you did nothing. You just collected the rent and you had systems for that. And then the 20% of the time you had a rough tenant and you had to earn your money. But that was kind of my thinking about all of that. Now, I also had uh, no property management software when I first started. It was spreadsheets. It was just me and my 900 you know, square foot office. But as the business grew, um, it became a little less profitable and it was really like a loss leader for us. Something that generally the first couple of years in business, we all griped about. It, it hurt our reviews. It was a challenging business. It was hard to just really be great at the management side of things. We eventually, I think, became very good, very good at property management, but it took a lot of um, technologies, uh, property management softwares, maintenance management softwares, you know, account, different accounting tools. You know, we ended up buying a, a software that allowed us to syndicate our properties out to 200 websites. Before I had to go to website, to website, to website, to website, taking 5, 10, 15, 30 minutes to make a listing. And we promised our customers we'd put you on four websites. Well, along the way, technology made my job easier and we embraced it. And we were a very technology or focused property management company. And to this day, we're, we're, I think we're still one of the leaders as a property manager in technology. We have so many new things that people don't even know about because it's proprietary. And from what I know about competition, but I also don't have inside knowledge of others, we're by far ahead of the property managers in that space because that was kind of like a, we were built on technology made this happen. We can you know, manage more properties for that amount of money than, than anybody else. I think our, when I was CEO, I could manage around 250 properties per employee. And we thought we could grow that easily to 400 through our automated systems that were proprietary to us. Now, I think we're about 300 today, but things are changing because we're now in you know, 38 states. So there's, there's so much more than just managing one market. It became a more sophisticated beast. And I go back to technology. It'll, technology is the only way that allowed us to become that you know, damn near Remax or Coldwell Banker of property management to have a presence in nearly all 50 states is still our goal. Mm, all right. So let's pause on that. 
I, I mean, my mind is like racing with different angles I want to take this, but you mentioned becoming a national brand. The reality is that there is not a Remax or a Keller Williams of property management. There are franchises, there are national franchises, but in terms of consumer, broad-based consumer recognition, where the consumer can just riff off four or five brands in a category, that more or less does not exist in property management. I would argue that you were the first guy to achieve that in a local market. You very much achieved that in your local market. You achieved kind of that surround sound effect. You went all out on radio. And what's interesting to me, Brenton, is that you did a lot of unprofitable things. If you all, meaning for a lot of folks, if they were to mirror the same playbook and if they had started spinning up radio ads at that same time and only gone 80% with it, there would just be a large smoking crater of lost money. You pushed through, you kept doing the spend. How early was the company before you started making dramatic investments in radio and media? And walk me through what that process looked like. I can say this now because we're not dependent like that then. But if you only knew me in the first year, we were on the verge of dying every, we had like two months to go at all times. And that's because I lived fast. I, ro- I rolled fast and hard. If we made a dollar, I spent $1.10 on something to go get another dollar just so we could keep things rolling. But there were some things like radio. You know, I remember my first buy was $3,000 a month. And that was like, wow. I, and I signed like a six-month commitment. And I, I pretty much in my head saying, there's no way I'll be able to honor this unless it really works. And I'm going to be in trouble if I have to back out on this. But that first month, I mean, that... The phone's just like when a radio spot, because we don't have a lot of business. We're a new company. But when the radio spot hit, I had to get, I, I had a problem. I had to get phones that had, could take multiple calls. I had to get somebody who would answer that phone because one of my things I wanted to do was answer all the calls all the time. That's what real estate agents never do. And I wanted to always answer the call every time. No voicemails was kind of like our early mantra. Some things just happen and they just, they work and they grab you by the, you know, freaking arm. And they say, you got to keep doing this. And radio was that like 3000 must've turned into 10. So I did it again, turned into 10. So then I'm like, what if I put 10 in it? Well, shoot, it comes back 30. Well, what if I put 30 in it? And I just kept up in my budget as much as I could to the point I was spending, uh, 600, $700,000 a month in Minnesota on radio. And you're right. If we, if you thought about property management, you absolutely only knew of us, thought about us, went to us. We were we we had at least had 60, 70% market share during that time in Minnesota and grabbing more and more and more. And that's why we roughed some feathers. Um, because we're we're making claims. We were backing them up and growing in it, and we were shaking the industry up. And radio, I was increasingly heavily dependent on. And towards about 2015, it stopped working, Jordan. Um, no longer could I just feed the beast. We hit a top, we hit the cap. You know, when we were spending easily, you know, almost $10 million a year across the nation and we hit a cap, that's just, that's as much as you can spend and get, and, and that's as much juice as that lemon has to give to you. And so now we've really gotten smarter about how we advertise. You know, another thing we did though too, Jordan, was take advantage of pay-per-click back then. And really we had splash pages when you could control, you had to be really specific, Minneapolis property manager. Austin property management. If you didn't have these little splash pages, it was very challenging to get them to drive back to your just renters warehouse.com. So right. we had 
50 websites out there that were just splash pages about us in different cities. I mean, it was a, it was a gold rush of pro- for property managers. Everything wasn't done when it came to technology or mo- and advertising even. Nobody advertised being a property manager. I direct mailed the hell out of you. I went on the radio. I eventually had Super Bowl commercials. If you thought about property management, I wanted you to know I existed. And I wanted you to know our value proposition. That was the only thing I tried to do. Eventually, I was able to do you know cost per lead, cost per sale, and really get intelligent about it. But I just looked at it as how well it worked in the beginning and you know, just kept feeding the beast. So I remember doing a problem solution interview with you sometime around 2011, 2012. I was in Guatemala and we were pivoting off of the lead gen service called Manage My Property, pivoting into Lead Simple. And we wanted to, to talk to folks to think how they thought about the sales function. And it was a little depressing. A lot of the folks that we interacted with did not have a formal sales function within the organization. It was somebody juggling hats, doing it part-time. I get on the phone with you and we're immediately having a conversation that I'm very comfortable with, but it's much more like a Valley SaaS kind of conversation, talking about lifetime values, customer acquisition costs. I remember you giving me, and I'm looking at the document right now, you gave me a channel-specific CAC for APM, radio, different types of radio, talk versus music, pay-per-click, SEO. You told me your customer lifetime value down to the dollar, and you were making strategic bets off of that, meaning it was not a faith-based proposition. I put the money in. I see how much money comes out. If it's enough money, I'm going to put more dollars in. And furthermore, I'm going to max out my credit cards, and I'm going to borrow against that because it's a profitable return. What was the impulse that you had or, or what was the training or background that got you to operationalize sales and marketing in light of the fact that so many businesses buy into this lie that if you build it, they will come. It's all about service. We're number one, how long you've been in the business, et cetera. You didn't care about any of that. You just went straight to the jugular. Where did that impulse come from? It came from, you know, being a hyper growth business, I needed help. I'm a first time entrepreneur with this business. And I was in an entrepreneurial group called EO, uh, Entrepreneurs Organization. It's a worldwide chapter of founders and CEOs of businesses. And everybody in this business was talking about a operating, a business operating system. Like 70 of the 77 members used a business operating system called Entrepreneurial Operating System, short for EOS. And it was derived from a book called Traction, uh, written by Gino Wickman. And now there's 200 people. In fact, I'm one of them that go around the country teaching this to small businesses that are willing to pay me a handsome fee to teach it. But that business operating concept exposed how much I didn't know and how much I could know and how if I was already so good at this, imagine if I had some of the things I needed to know and read it instead of just going off gut decisions. And that's really what it was. I mean, traction is all about, you know, people, data. Uh, It's about values. It's about growth uh, and how you're going to track growth. And so this was just perfect for me, uh, EOS. And so I used that system to my benefit. And that's what I didn't even know these things like CPCs and CPI, what they meant, but this is all, this all taught it to me. Uh, and it helped me organize it and see what was working well and what wasn't. It helped me keep my finger on the pulse of the business. So while I was making lots of bets, I was checking in on those bets, like, you know, refreshing the page every minute because I had real-time <laughs> data uh, pe- telling me. And, and I was living on the edge because I could. I had good data 
and things were going smoothly. So, you know, you were a part of that. If, you know, we, you were a part of my lead generation monster. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted any and all leads. I, I think we even tried to acquire you. I wanted to have exclusivity. <laughs> I was like, whatever I could do to get every juice, a uh, drop of juice out of that freaking lead source, I wanted it. And because I found it worked, you know, I call you up, Jordan, what do I got to do to get more? I'm getting leads, I'm closing them, but I want more of them. I'll pay you more, I'll pay you less. What, what do we, how do we do this, you know? Um, but I could tell because I knew if I had a customer, they stayed seven, eight years. And every year I kind of had to add a new year because they were still there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, geez, my customer lifetime value is so massive. I could really afford to spend a lot to acquire one. Mm-hmm. And so that hit me in the head that no other property manager ever been hit like that to say, wow, I can actually spend like $2,000 to go out and get a customer because I'll, it'll make me 16000 over you know eight years and 98% of my customers stay with me eight years. Well, geez, that's an easy bet. Maybe I could spend 8000 I could mm. spend 10000 mm. And so I just, I, I saw that and I just, well, if that's the case, then what other sources can I advertise with? Let's get on Manage My Property. Let's get on APM. Let's have a Super Bowl commercial. Wow, what would happen if we did a Super Bowl commercial? What well, worked freaking great. We had the numbers to back it up. Those things drive power. Data, uh, instead of running off Eagle Field, meeting rooms, gut feelings, I'm letting real life data drive my decisions in my business and it empowered the shit out of me. Hmm. Bren, did you know you were in the moment when you were there? Like, did you know that this was kind of a, a limited time window and did that cause you to really go balls out with all that, this stuff or, or I never felt the pressure of a limited window. Uh, I always stated that I thought it was, but I really never thought about it. I was really caught up and just like keeping up with the growth. I didn't have much time to think about what I had done. I just had to think about what I need to do. And it was only around 2014, 2015 that I actually started to look back as I was like a couple months past my 27th birthday and I was looking at my yellow notebook saying I should have been retired and I'm looking at my bank account and saying, geez, I probably could. And then I'm looking at the cash flow. I'm like, wow, holy shit, we're here. And then 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 it made me look back on the business and see things that were changing, see what I had done. I also realized I didn't want to stall the business for my own comfort, meaning just mm-hmm. work. This is good for me. Right. This business could go places. I was sort of burnt out. I had been running at full speed for about 10 years and I decided to sell a controlling stake uh, of that business. I'm still the largest shareholder in that business, but I'm out of control now. Do you want to network with other grade A entrepreneurs that are ready to talk more than simple day-to-day operations? Are you interested in expanding your business through cutting-edge sales, marketing, and growth strategies? If so, you need to be at the 2019 PM Growth Summit held in April in Austin, Texas. Check out at pmgrowsummit.com. Learn what the difference is between hope and actual results. It's called taking action. That's what we do collectively at the PM Grow Summit by bringing in world-class speakers, world-class attendees. Get more information at pmgrowsummit.com. I love your recognition that the business can and does have a life beyond the founder. That's the way that it should be. There are people whose lives uh, the business depends upon and it should 
have a ambition and scope beyond just the wants and desires of the founder. That's awesome. You were able to step out. I want to hear more about the chaos, living on the edge. I think anybody that hears that you're spending that kind of money on sales marketing, the extreme growth, what are the downsides to living on the edge? And here's one thing in particular I want to hear more about. In my mind, this picture I'm imagining of you being young, starting this business, the flat fee thing, no downside, right? Maybe you could go broke if the price isn't high enough, but it's a free country. You can charge whatever you want. Spend a bunch of money on radio ads, same thing. What about the guarantees? This is a sticky issue. There's a lot of conversations nationally now as more awareness is in case, as more real estate boards have kind of perked up their ears to, are you offering insurance? How does all that work? Yeah. Because you pioneered that and it was a great yeah, idea. I was for it too, you know, Jordan. So, so t- t- walk me through that piece of the story. Well, it was all about value proposition. How right. can we close more leads? How can we a damn get- good one. We have people calling now. We're closing 70% of them. How do we close 100? It was, we had a couple missing value propositions that even no one else had. But if I had them, I could have got the business. Mm-hmm. And it's first thing we started out with was a tenant warranty. Okay. We actually trademarked that. If you heard it before, it's my word. I own that. <laughs> Let me know if anyone's using a tenant warranty out there. Love it. Second, that warranty said, and this, this is all it was, Jordan, in the beginning. If that tenant didn't last 60 days, we would, fi- we would process the eviction for you at our cost and find you a new tenant at no additional cost. And here's why that was created. Because everybody else would not only not let you approve the tenant, they would. But then if it didn't work out, they'd say, well, that's how it goes sometimes. And then they'd charge you again to put another tenant in there. And I'm like, no, 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 we can't have that. Now, it's very rare a tenant's going to default, but I wanted people to know we're not like that. So that was all it really was in the beginning. Today, we warranty you for the full length of firstly the full 12 months. Hmm. Okay? Any exceptions? That tenant's subject to default or gets evicted, we owe you a new tenant to handle the eviction. Then we also came out with a separate product that you, if you didn't want, um, we would sell you an eviction protection product, which we would cover all the costs associated with an eviction uh, and find your new tenant, but then we also would cover your rent for up to a period of time if your tenant got evicted. And then it rolled into eventually a rent protection program that we licensed through uh, Aon Insurance and became the largest seller of in America until they abandoned that program and we offered our own. Well, eventually, you know, all my competitors all launched similars, called it something slightly different, and especially in Minnesota where this was all going down, a bunch of copycats out there. And we were just, you know, that's what made us have a tough relationship with everybody in the market. Nobody would talk to us. Everybody hated us. If they called any other company, they'd talk shit about us. But the one thing we didn't do is we tried, you know, maybe at the CEO level from me to you, I'd talk some shit, but we never as a company would ever talk crap about any other property manager during that time because we, that was also something we wanted to not be. We had a lot of these, we don't want to be this value sets. We want to be this. We always had these value and anti-value. So any new person that came on board, we wanted them to know exactly where we stood and why we are who we are. And that's how we hired and fired. If you went against our values, you're against our whole company plan here. And that's just, you're messing up the mojo. Uh, and we had a great culture. You know, we, a lot of this is to the fact that, you know, over my 10 years, I only had like six people ever leave and we had hundred plus employees. We won must like 10 best place to work awards. So while there was chaos around us for everybody else, I think, man, 
I was quite content. I had an amazing team. Almost everything we touched turned to gold. But um, to go back to this, uh, these insurance products, when I went to sell my business in 2015, I'd never been audited before uh, by the, the real estate commission. And that's odd because, you know, I'm the biggest property manager in the state by far. And the reason that was is because nobody complained about us. We were awesome, at least at the commissioner level or the licensing level. Well, when I went to sell, I had to transfer my license to another broker and uh, or the company's license to another uh, guy. And they initiated an audit and uh, they, they made me abandon those programs. They said I was selling insurance without an insurance license, but I was actually selling somebody else's insurance who does have an insurance license and only getting paid like $25, which was the maximum I was allowed to get paid. It was perfectly legal. And uh, my lawyers will argue the same, but um, we had, we would have to argue the state and they would have deferred uh, listing our, or deferred transferring our license. And they would have lost, uh, I would have lost uh, uh, the deal of a lifetime to sell my business. So um, we, we compromised. And to this day, we only have some of those programs. We have our tenant warranty. Um, we don't have a rent protection program because the many states don't allow us to. Uh, and then the, we used to have a property protection program that we're not allowed to have, even though that was a product that was like a home warranty and we ran it under a home warranty like provision. Uh, we used to protect our homeowners against any and all property damage up to a thousand dollars. So they could pay a nominal fee. And if your tenant damaged your property up to a thousand dollars, we would pay for it. It was all these things to alleviate fear and angst to hire us. It was all these things to give you more value to hire us. And we created all those things. And as a result, you can imagine the marketplace loved it. And we never had any real problems with it. They were only lost because states uh, fought against us and said they want, you know, they wanted us to do it differently or just not at all in general. So, you know, some of those innovations are kind of lost and are state by state specific, but Renters Warehouse had plans to take all of those products, bring them to every state nationwide and, and eventually bundle them into our service. The idea was to go from 79 to say, you know what? If you choose the $99 plan, we're going to give you all of that. How's that sound? And now the $99 plan is regularly the regular price for everybody else out there. But our $99 plan included all those products. That was our phase two takeover of the property management empire uh, plan. But that, that got hijacked by many states who wanted us to get rid of those. So on the back of the conversation we just had, I want to talk uh, building out your team. Obviously, that means staff. But before you even go there, let's talk about vendors. This is We're getting into some minutia, but hey, it's my show and I want to talk about some specifics. So I want to get your advice on finding the right legal counsel. For your average PM, you know what the game looks like, risk, liability, et cetera. Any, any advice on the criticality of, of finding the right CPA, uh, legal advisor, et cetera? Yeah, Absolutely. You need a great accountant and you need a great lawyer if you're going to be a businessman and, and have any scale. And you can't be cheap about it. You can't just hire your friend who became one. You got to research it. Who's the, who's the big dog in real estate? Who spends, who doesn't work on anything else but real estate? You know, who, who is, uh, you know, got an entrepreneurial open mindset? Who likes your business as much as you? You know, you want a partner. You don't want a lawyer for today or one case. You want to, you kind of want a long-term deal. My accountants were fantastic. I eventually had both inside accountants, third-party accountants and accounting firms. I never cheaped on that. I wanted to know all the numbers were accurate. I wanted to have, all, you know, just, we had a lot going on. I, I were collecting $30 million of people's rent a month. We want to make sure that that's audited to the nuts. You know, so we never took accounting. 
cheaply. And then, you know, along the way, we had, I think, probably the longest lease in the business. One of our old core values was to have the most landlord-friendly lease in the business. Uh, because landlords in Minnesota were being taken advantage of by tenants all the time. And that was a common problem that investors faced. So I created a, like a 30-something page lease that cost me a lot of money and was way above and beyond the one page or two page that was being used in the marketplace. And it gave a lot of power, a lot of um, disclosure, and it allowed us to do other things um, that made it beneficial for the landlord. And so that was all good legal work. Um, I had some bad choices in, in lawyers along the way um, and went through a lot of lawyers. But uh, eventually, towards the end, I had my own uh, chief legal officer in-house who just lived in, in, and did that. Uh, his name was Dave Thompson. He's actually, uh, he opened up our North Carolina office um, when uh, we were expanding and uh, since he's left the business. But we, we used to have inside counsel so important to us. And even as a smaller business, that was, a, that was something we had because we'd be out there spending a couple hundred grand with a law firm when we could pay a guy a couple hundred grand and get so much more from him than just the hours he worked. I get the long tenant lease. That makes sense to me. What about the property management agreement? How did your PMA change same from thing. day one? Yeah, same thing. You know, with all those new programs and, and warranties and added services and optional add-ons, it got long. And tenant placement agreement was all was about getting your property listed. And we also a la carte of these things. You could hire me to just lease it or just manage it. That was something not many property managers did either. And so we had separate agreements. And the tenant placement, we took a different approach. Um, we wanted it to be non-binding contract, cancel any time. This is all we're going to do. And if we do it and you approve of it, you agree to pay us fair enough. And that was it. Uh, now, the lead contracted lease agreement, well, that was a different story. That was a, that was a business agreement that was a lot of money at stake and somebody's borrowing you a very expensive asset. While it didn't take away any tenant rights, it just made it very clear what the landlord was and wasn't responsible for and what they were and weren't responsible for and different ways to pay rent and you know, we addressed every issue and every time we'd come up with something where we'd get beaten court about some crap or some clause or something, we would go back to the drawing board and make that lease better. You know, today we've really scaled that lease down though. I don't know where it stands, but through good legal work, we've been able to combine all the years of put, you know, parts that we added on and just really condense it and still have that same great value, but I would say better written, shorter. So I think it's around like, 15 pages now, but that sucker got up to almost 40 when I was around. Love it. So let's pivot to the other side of the team building, which is in-house. You built out a solid stable of A players. I'm thinking about Kevin Nortner, Jesse Evans, Ron Wright, Pam Kosanke, Kaz, some folks from old, from new, and a whole bunch of others that I don't know personally. But these are ones that I've met, was impressed by. What lessons did you learn along the way about both making the right hire the first time, but also doing the skill development and talent development over time? You know, that was me, but it wasn't. I'm not a great trainer, but I used that entrepreneurial operating system. And that gave me a tool to help me to, you know, track and organize my vision, which then I could clearly articulate that to new hires. I also hired and fired based on core values of the company and myself. I liked having like-minded people around. So I would hire like-minded people. And that had same core values and appreciated my company's core values. And I used a tool called the People Analyzer tool, um, which allowed me to make sure I was hiring people that fit in. You know, they could have been a great superstar, but maybe they're a jerk. 
mm-hmm. and they just will mess up the vibe you got. Well, that was, I wouldn't do that. And in fact, I would hire guys that I knew had a good vibe, good ability to learn and were open-minded, but had never done property management before. That was how I built a really great team. Right. Everyone you mentioned, every single one, they don't know jack about property management. They do now. <laughs> they do now, but they never did. I should hope so. Kevin Horner is the CEO of the company. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he had like two properties he managed with his dad that he just got started on. But, yeah. you know, aviation he's, veteran. he's a veteran. He's the CEO. Now, I, I, have, I made him CEO. Uh, he was my longtime president. Uh, when I, re- I actually retired a year before I sold the business to move away. Uh, and he ran that business for me uh, and did a good job. He's still there. Some of those names you mentioned are no longer there. We're still attracting really top talent. But now we're attracting them from Fortune 500 companies. I think some of those same values and tools are being used. I just had that conversation with Kevin, our CEO, about whether or not he's using traction, or I call it traction. It's EOS. He said, you know, and in many of the markets, and at least at corporate, we are. So I believe all of those things are still being happening. And that's, I think that's a, you know, it, it creates a culture. It creates a culture of transparency, shared interest. You know, as a result, that just leads to more conducive workplace environment. You get more from your employees. Those employees get empowered with new tools, new systems, um, and makes it better executives out of them. Even if, if, if they're really great executives and they never worked with EOS and now they have, and now they also worked in property management, I made, that made them better. I know that EOS will make everyone better. And so in any business I've ever done, I still put it in from my pizza shop to my laundromat to some development companies, other things, you got to have EOS in it, or at least have an operating system. That operating system is responsible for radio advertising. I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go as far as saying the book traction by Gina Wickman and iHeartRadio were like the cement and bricks to the renter's warehouse. They were the building materials I needed. And I'll let everyone know if you had those two in your pocket, like I did, you're unstoppable. That is not what I expected to hear, Brenton. I remember you mentioning EOS back in the day and you had a trainer in. I didn't realize it was that big a part of the success, but it actually makes sense to me. In light of the level of chaos that you willingly embraced and pumped into the organization because of your ambition, knowing that EOS was kind of the the metal superstructure undergirding the whole thing. That's actually really inspiring. I actually just had Mike Payton on the podcast a couple episodes ago. Mike's um, an OG, man. He's, uh, I was taught by somebody who he taught, uh, CJ Dubet. You may have met her at our national convention once that you were a sponsor. I, I did. That's who I was thinking of. CJ taught me and all my businesses and his renters where else is coach. She's now along with Mike top dogs at EOS that actually sold the private equity recently. And uh, now I'm part of EOS as a uh, implementer just recently, like two months ago. I'm a, I'm a CJ and a Mike now, but not quite to their level. Love it. So the last leg of the conversation around team building and selection, I just, I'd love to hear your, your story of the journey through franchising. Why was that initially attractive to you? What hurdles did you uncover and why did the company eventually transition away from franchising? Uh, that was a very capital efficient way for me to expand. Going back to the fact that I, I did speak about how I thought it was a limited opportunity for us to achieve national recognition as the Cobalt Banker, the Remax of property management instead of real estate. And we were going around, uh, we had our new term, professional landlords that we coined and trademarked. And, and we wanted to no longer be property managers, but the professional landlords. 
And it, with that, we set out on a mission to expand nationwide. That plan to expand nationwide really required me to have a, a better management team. And along that way, I had to, uh, I had to expand. I, I decided to basically stop doing the property management and focus on how do I teach people to do property management, sell some franchises, learn the franchising business, because you got you to gotta become licensed in 50 states. All those have fees. You got long franchise agreements. People are buying rights to certain states or counties or markets. We ended up selling 38 franchises. We were different than like a subway or like real property management where we gave large exclusive territories because my model allowed you to be very big versus like a real property management kind of wanted you to work your neighborhood. And uh, so your model was built on what you had personally achieved and experienced. Yeah. It was replicating what we had done in Minnesota. If I could only have 50 more of those, one in every state, we could, that's all it needed instead of, you know, like a Remax is on every corner. Renters Warehouse could, could cover the whole state from one corner. That was just how our model worked. And so we were a very franchisable concept. Um, we still have a number of very successful franchises. Houston uh, is a very Pretty successful great. multi-thousand unit franchisee. Atlanta with uh, oh, Todd man. Barton. Those, those are, you know, the two bigger ones, a guy, our guy out in Baltimore, uh, David Gurion, I think he was franchise number one, other than Phoenix, who was Kevin, who was like a partner at the time. But that guy walked right into a vault at my first ever franchise convention. Uh, it's like nine in the morning on day one of Thursday and literally comes in, doesn't look at a single thing, walks right up to my booth. I came here to buy a renter's warehouse. I would like to buy it today. I already researched it. I already want to do it. And I was taken away by it. And we went in the back room. We signed a franchise agreement or a, a franchise receipt because we had to wait 14 days or whatever. He owned, uh, he went out and opened up in Baltimore. Well, he's got the Maryland area. Uh, he's doing very well for himself, David Geary. And uh, I always remember his story because he was such a great low maintenance franchisee and a great entrepreneur. Now, why did we get away from that? There wasn't well, before we talk about that, let's talk yeah. about the flip side of David Gurian. Because I know invariably, just math probabilities, you also probably pick some dogs, right? I mean, how do you how do you handle the drag that the less ideal decision making around franchisees creates in the organization when they start to underperform? I never had any underperformers. All of them were able to actually achieve pretty decent success. What I had was guys that didn't want to carry on, didn't like to work too much to keep going, or perhaps there was too much pressure for them to do work harder. And so we lost a couple that wanted to leave the industry after being in it a year or two, um, but none of them were ever closed. Uh, none of them were ever taken back, except for one who got himself in a bit of a legal trouble. I had probably two franchises we took back or the guy wanted to leave and I've never had one close or fail. We've since bought 20 of them back okay. and turned them into corporate offices. Got and it. that's where I was going with this. I used franchising as a way to expand capital efficiently. You know, I didn't have a lot of money and it allowed me to expand really quickly using other people's money and get into those markets and, and obtain my piece. Well, when you're backed by private equity, they said, why would you do that? We have money. Let's open up corporate offices. And uh, that's what they decided to do. And uh, almost promptly after I sold a controlling stake of the business, they decided, uh, not I, I would have kept going with both. They, they decided to close the franchising division for future sales. 
Now, we still have a number of franchises that we support, um, and many of them will probably be purchased back. That's our ultimate goal is we roll up our own and then also continue to expand by opening up new offices. We also bought a number of um, companies that were unrelated to us, big and small. We must have spent $20 million in the last two years buying companies. Some of them are, some of them not. So that we've been growing inorganically as well. Love it. So this was a long-term play to have corporate really be the, the primary dominant player in the market, but you used a capital efficient strategy to gain traction. Totally makes sense. I love some of the guys that you mentioned, Rich Drake, uh, smart operator. Every time I'm, I'm with that guy, I learned something. I was actually at one of his Houston events at the Redneck Country yeah, Club. Country Club. You know, little fat, Jordan, um, I have a number of board seats on Renner's Warehouse just enough to keep me out of control. And, but because I control so many seats and so many votes, I don't want, I want more insight in the boardroom. And so I actually appoint different people that I think bring a lot of value to the board. And Richard Drake is my newest appointee. Uh, he's one of seven voting board members on Renner's Warehouse's corporate advisory board. Oh, and wow. director board. So that just happened like a few months ago. Pamela was on there for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, my OG partner, Ryan Marvin, mm-hmm. uh, decided to move north and do a lot of um, playing Monopoly up in a northern Minnesota town, buying up and developing as much as he can up there and is taking time away from the board. And as a result, we fill his seat as well. Beautiful. So one of the other aspects of operations that was unique was what you did with the sales function. And this wasn't because early on you were multi-market. It was just in the one market you were in, you were driving so much volume. Was it a complete no-brainer to you to have that inside sales function of a centralized call function? or Because uh, very few companies do that, even when they're multi-market. You were really going all out, being able to drive mass efficiency in that regard. In the beginning, it was just me. And that was kind of appealing to some people, I think. By having these radio ads, we were perceived to be this big company. And I remember in the early days, everybody perceived me to be this giant company. And I can't believe I'm talking to the CEO. Can't believe I'm talking to the owner. That's so cool. And I was like, oh, we're about five people here, but that's cool. I answered almost all the phones for like a year and a half. I perfected the, the script, overcoming the objections that were common. I was developing our value proposition by listening to people why they did or didn't do business with us. So for me, it didn't come naturally. It came naturally for me to manage the phone because it was my money and I needed it to work. That was my first level of like trusting someone else was bringing in somebody to help me answer the phones so that I could work on the business instead of just doing that now. And that started out with a guy I trusted and he did a good job. He was a good salesman. He lasted about a year. And then Jesse was one of like the first six employees I hired. I think employee number six. And uh, he started out customer service, but quickly earned a lot of um, respect in the office, you know, went on to be the head of sales for six years. Um, and he helped me, along with my management team, create a, a very robust sales process, automated follow-ups, you know, having a CRM, overcoming objections, assigning deals out to agents, tracking, you know, conversion, how long it took us to get to a call. We were really building things out one by one by one by one. And eventually it became a, a sophisticated system, which even today we're reworking. You know, we're building brand new custom proprietary CRM with a heavy emphasis on how we're handling our sales division. So we're redoing that to make it even more smarter, having text, incorporating text messaging follow-ups and all kinds of other new tech. It was increasingly more important and easier for me to expand once I got that one guy in there. 
But that was probably the hardest thing ever. I hung on to that seat for a long time, giving somebody control of that. I called it the money funnel. Because mm-hmm. I just, you know, you, you better make sure that money comes in that funnel. If you suck at selling or don't answer the phone, man, that's, that would just make me insane. And I, I used to get just nuts in the first year or two. If, if I'd hear the phone ring a couple times or somebody went to voicemail and then they called again, I'd just lose my cool. That was the quickest way to get me fired up is like, you know, it cost me like $600 to make that phone ring. We just said, fuck it. Let's just not answer it. And, you know, if you answered it, it was like an 80% chance we we're going to get that business. And that, you know, we didn't. Nice job, you know. And we created this environment where just nobody wanted to let anyone down. That EOS gave us this uh, great transparency because everybody had numbers and goals and we had to report on them every week. And you had to self-report. And we had benchmarks to just know if you were doing good or bad and nobody wanted to be on the wrong side of the benchmark. So everybody came prepared, hit the benchmark and then some. It just created a very competitive a shared vision collective. I think of the early days of Renner's Warehouse, like the T2 collective. You know, what did Terminators want to do? They want to do one thing. They want to kill humans, right? Take over the world. And everyone is aligned on one mission, right? Let's go, let's go kill things. Well, we were like a cybernetic collective of property managers. We wanted to just go kill and slay the property management industry and no other focus. And if you want to come join the army and have a mindless uh, mission, like where this is all we're doing and we only do this now, this is your mission. You'll, you'll agree to stay the mission. Then you came on board and you stayed a long time. If you did back then, it, it was really cool. Man, a cybernetic group of property management organisms. Wow. You were you asked my guys. That's, I think that's how they describe it. We were so connected. We were friends. <laughs> they were lower paid than ever, but happier than ever because we're all working together. They, they all thought they were a part of something, which they were. They can all take credit for pieces of the success. Those insurance products we brought up, those uh, warranty programs. I didn't think of all of those. Those were, those were discovered in uh, problem-solving meetings as part of my EOS uh, system. They were troubleshooted and brainstormed amongst what I called my level 10, my 10 advisors in my business that I met with every week that helped me run and innovate the business. I was the visionary. I had an integrator and then I had a team of people I wanted their input. People who thought differently than me and people who thought the same as me and together we created so much. I got to go back to that EOS system. There's a lot we didn't get to talk about. I do want to pivot to one last theme and that's this. As you grow and you learn more about life, being an entrepreneur, being a man, as the, the scope of your view of the world broadens over time, I'm sure you've experienced, as I have, the reality that what's true for me is not always true for somebody else. There are many paths to happiness and fulfillment, et cetera. With the kind of success that you've had, with the path that you took, I'm curious what advice you have to the average property manager. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. I say that in a statistical sampling kind of way. You take your average, you take 5,000 NARPA members, you peg the average temperament and profile, and it doesn't look like Runner's Warehouse or anything close to that. How would you advise or counsel somebody that's managing, let's say, between three and 400 doors, they're growing at 50 doors a year, and it feels like a lot of sweat and a lot of work, but they're not going to go borrow a half a million to run radio ads. They want a decent lifestyle. They want some more freedom within the business. They're, they're probably their number one complaint is people issues. What kind of advice do you think is germane for that flavor of entrepreneur and business play? I'd say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to EOS, Jordan. 
because if you're content and you've built something like three, 400 units and you're, you got a good reputation and, and things are fine, you're happy, you've achieved your level of success, then I would say make it easier for you to manage and make it easier for you to tell if things are going good or bad and make it easier for you to continue to remove yourself from that role and make the company more valuable so it doesn't depend on you. Uh, so that one day, not only can the income be there, but you can sell the business as an asset like I did and let it live on. You know, most people's businesses are themselves. If you right. can transform your business that is of yourself without even changing the size, you've changed your value. Mm. Mm. And EOS did that for me. I didn't know I was doing it, but hindsight said that that's what it was. And that's my advice. Mm. Man, I love that. And what we're not talking about is the ego commitment that is required to do that. Somebody pointed out to me just recently, I think it was actually, I was watching a Gary Vaynerchuk interview and he was interviewing a gal that was running a very tiny company and she was complaining about not being able to find the right people. And he turned it back on her and basically said, are you sure that you're not allowing your ego to be the, the limit of the competence of the people that you're willing to hire in order to always be the smartest person within mm-hmm. the organization? And at some point, you got you to give that up. Uh, certainly, when I think about those people that we talked about earlier, Kevin, Jesse, Ron, Pam, some of those folks have to be a lot more competent than you in their specific domain. I mean, right. I've been in the marketing game for a while, but Pam... Man, she's oh, right. she's a baller. That's a legend right there. That's a that's a real that's the OG of the ad game, man. That's that's the big game too. So, you know, that's the that's a girl that invented the dollar menu. I mean, that's <laughs> a girl that's got like things like that on her resume that made me chase her for two years. You know, but you know what? That woman made three, five, six, eight hundred thousand dollars a year at the biggest firms around, plus then some, and then some. But she wasn't happy. She came to me, worked for like a hundred. She was the only person I felt comfortable letting take over advertising. That was the last job I had um, that I wouldn't let go because it was such a big spend. And I taught myself through it with um, a really great mentor partner, Tracy Call, the owner of Media Bridge Advertising in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Right. We started our businesses around the same time. She's a tycoon now of that space. Her and Pam are together, working together. And um, Pam is clearly the best in her space. You know, Kevin is highly intelligent doer. And I was able to reposition him as my president. You know, uh, Jesse has a great management style of people and could sell as well, or if not better than me and or in a better temperament than Mm -hmm. me selling. Mm -hmm. Every one of these guys had absolutely key things that made them better. The reason I felt comfortable giving that job. And those people were also in my level 10 room. You know, if you remember Caleb Gilbertson, man, me and him were butt heads. God, we butt heads. That was like my favorite employee. Like he, he and I couldn't think differently on shit. But that guy was a wizard in the tech game. He fought and challenged me ruthlessly on everything. And I fucking loved it. I loved it because I always knew where he stood. He always backed up what he said he said. He, if he, he didn't just spout from the mouth, he had a real reason why he was rhyming right now. Why I was talking to you. And I love that. I love guys that could contribute to the business uh, but actually, if challenged on it, knew their shit instead of just talking to hear themselves. I had nothing but OGs around me. Um, Caleb, all these guys are now gone doing bigger, better things and taking their skills to new businesses, except for, you know, Kevin still around. Jesse is the top corporate office that we newly opened. He moved to Texas and runs Austin and Dallas now for us. 
and Fort Worth. Uh, we have three offices down there. The only one he does around is Houston because Rich is still a franchisee, but we really improved our presence in Texas. And Jesse, one of those OGs, has moved on from selling to now running a, a state for us, but he's actually moving into a bigger position here soon where he's going to start managing the guys mm. that manage states. Mm. Man, so I think you just made the ultimate argument for growth, and that is this. It's not about the roles. It's not about the Rolex. It's about providing abundant opportunity for growth and for development for your team. Hiring A players that require the organization to be going somewhere so they can go somewhere. Yep. If, you, if you get on that ladder and you realize it's a three-rung ladder, you ain't going to be on it for real long unless that is essentially the scope of your ambitions. And yep. for a lot of folks... People, don't, people want to work with other people that have that hustle and the ambition. That's where the need for growth comes from. Final question of the interview. I ask every single guest this, Brenton, and I'm very interested to hear your reply. Question is this, Brenton Hayden, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? It had to be born because I wasn't bred. And I never really thought about being an entrepreneur until it was forced on me through being a real estate agent. Like I didn't, I didn't really want to start my own company. I just, I did. Cause I, I guess I had a license and I essentially had to. So you weren't the kid that dressed up like Trump at five years old in Halloween. You know, I did say, and you know, this is where I say I was, I was born. I looked up to business executives. I wanted to have the private jet and wear the fancy suit and go to business meetings instead of work hard and get sweaty and dirty. You know, uh, I looked up to those things my whole life. Like today, I still think Elon Musk is just, he inspires the shit out of me. He's just a, he's an alien walking this earth, I think. And he, he, these are guys that just like, if I hear, I just listened to his Joe Rogan podcast and that shit got me Classic. so fired up and, Classic. and wanting to start a business and be more like Elon. I couldn't, I couldn't just, I couldn't control myself, but those guys get me fired up. And so I think it's, I'm born with like a certain, I pick up on those wavelengths of those types of people. And that's what inspires me. And that's, and when I get inspired, uh, the, you know, inspiration is perishable, right? You know, I'm not, I'm not inspired anymore a couple of days after, you know, that podcast, you know, but when you get inspired and if you can harness it, you can do the work of like, you know, a month of work in one hour because you're inspired and you just, you're just sweating working. And I felt inspired the whole time I was at Renner's Warehouse. And so finding inspiration uh, for me was what fueled my entrepreneurial fire because I constantly found new inspiration. There's a lot of times it was in my business, but I think you're born, man. I think you also can be bred though, too. I've seen guys be bred. I've probably bred a few. Come to think of it, there's no negative contents either way. Right, be right. Bred, go to Harvard, go to Yale, and then do some more. Get, get that pedigree up and then go to work. That's great. You know, I ended up going back to school. I went to Harvard and, and MIT, but through executive education. That shit sure empowered me. You know, it, maybe I did. Maybe I was breeding myself, but uh, mm. I, I jumped right into the fact that uh, uh, I was capable of being a leader. You know, maybe that was coming from sports, but there are certain characteristics you need to be an entrepreneur and actually be successful. And maybe that will lead for our next podcast we do together. That sounds good, man. We'll have to leave it there. This is a great interview. Where I come down on it is that entrepreneurial thinking can be taught and learned, but the yeah. fundamental characteristic of embracing irrational long-term suffering for a non-certain or a low probability gain, that's the aspect where you got to have a couple of screws loose for good or for bad. 
that's the, the side of the born that I identify with. Man, I appreciate you coming on the show. If folks want to learn more about what you're, you're up to and kind of follow you in retirement, are you on Twitter? Well, where, where can folks go to kind of see what you're up to? Man, I'm off the grid now. I've been retired five years, but, um, you know, LinkedIn. LinkedIn's where uh, every now and then I'm checking in, I'm interacting with people. Every now and then I'm looking for investments in there. LinkedIn's kind of like my business public page. Don't find me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm not going to follow you back and I don't let you follow me. Uh, I'm private man now, but I am doing that entrepreneurial organizational system coaching and implementing. Uh, And that's something I'm going to be building out at my new website, Oceano Rosso, which stands for Red Ocean in Italian. Uh, And my new company is called Red Ocean Consulting because I'm going to help businesses that are in industries like property management, you know, proven industries, but uh, they want to go in there and dominate. You know, Red Ocean stands for blood in the water and sharks are there. There's a lot of people eating. It's like it's the opposite of Blue Ocean where nobody's there. There's no fish and nobody's eating. That'd be like what Elon's doing in some SpaceX versus starting a new uh, sandwich shop would be Red Ocean. Well, I'm going to help people in those Red Ocean industries soon enough, use the same growth model I did. And so, uh, you know, follow me on LinkedIn because I'm going to be coming out of retirement here soon part-time and finding some hot shots to teach this new business model system too. So find me on LinkedIn would be a great way to, to contact me. And, and you know, don't lose touch with Renner's Warehouse and what we're doing there. That's still a big part of my life and we're still booming and doing big things. And we got a lot of new things coming out there. So I hope people check us out at Renner's Warehouse if you ever need a good property manager. Oh man, what a great way to close. To quote the Godfather, just when I thought it was out, they pulled me back in. You're back in the game. I love to hear that, man. Check out the websites that he referenced. If you have any inclination or interest in EOS, which you should, contact Brenton, learn more about what he's up to. Again, my man, thanks for this coming. This was fun, Jordan. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.